before we could even sing that lyric. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, you are good. Before any of us could ever say lyrics like that and, and sing that out to the Lord in the way that we just did, a horrific set of circumstances had to take place. Before we could sing of his glory, there was the, the trauma, the grotesqueness of the cross. Jesus, in fact, as the time stamps go in the gospel, Jesus was crucified around nine in the morning. Luke records that around noon that day, darkness covered the entire land. And he said further that the sun's light failed. For the people of Jerusalem, that was real. It was tangible. They experienced the darkness in real time. But it also stands as a stark metaphor for us today. It speaks to the darkness of our world. And in fact, it speaks to the darkness that invades our own hearts. That is the result, of course, of sin that has so firmly gripped us born in sin, sinners by nature. And as such, under this condemnation of death, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2.12 that we are without hope and without God in this world. That's the darkness we face. And I don't think I need to remind you what that darkness brings. We all live it every day. The account of the crucifixion that was read to us earlier reminds us of, of that single darkest day when Christ was crucified and the fact that the darkness brings several things into our lives. We see all of these in the text. First, it brings unanticipated and often crushing burdens. There's no doubt that some in this room have carried with them today a crushing burden into this room. It would be hard to imagine that there's anybody here who doesn't have a burden of some kind that they've carried into this place. Well, in verse 26, this man, Simon of Cyrene, is pressed into service. He's from out of town. He's not from Jerusalem. Presumably he's there for the Passover. We know nothing else about him except what's told here. We know his name. We know where he's from. We know that he was standing there in the crowd that day. And he got swept up in the frenzy of that moment. A burden placed on his shoulders through really no fault of his own compelled by the Roman soldiers who were taking Christ to the place of crucifixion, compelled by them to carry the horizontal piece for the cross. The vertical piece was already in the ground. This is the way it was constructed. It was already in the ground. The horizontal piece would be carried up to the place of crucifixion. Jesus had been so savagely beaten in the moments leading up to this that he was incapable of carrying that cross piece. 
Many, many have written about the beating and why he would have been in such a weakened state. For sure, he would have suffered already significant blood loss as a result of the scourging. The scourging itself would have left his flesh on his back, on the back of his legs, ripped open. Many, in fact, who have described this in history would say that the flesh was torn apart, that ligaments and tendons would be obvious, bone would be able to be seen. And Jesus was already brutalized by this point. It's not surprising that he wouldn't be able to carry this piece of wood, this heavy piece of wood. Isaiah 52, uh, 14, in fact, tells us of this prophesying that his image was so marred by the beating that he was unrecognizable. Simon was given a burden. And again, how many of us are weighed down right now? How many of us are in, in these days losing sleep over the stresses and burdens of life? How many of us feel the crushing weight of, of sickness or chronic infirmities, of financial pressures, of job stresses, of strained and or broken relationships? How many of us feel so overwhelmed by the burden that the only means that we believe we have to cope with this is to turn to substances or activities or habits or addictions. And how many of us would confess that we have this because we feel enveloped in darkness? We also face sorrows. This is a second thing that we see in the text. Not only burdens, but sorrows. Uh, Jesus, in verses 27 through 31, directs some women who were mourning for him to think about mourning for themselves. Imagine in his weakened state, unable to carry the crossbeam. He, he's not selfish. He's still thinking of others. And as he sees the women and he sees how broken they are, he speaks to them. Verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and weep for your children. And in the next few verses, he, he speaks of how hard it's going to be for them. And he's speaking about near prophecy, near fulfillment, something that's going to happen in the next years and decades. And certainly there's a part of this that's even yet future for us. His purpose in saying this is a fair warning uh, about the challenges of loving Jesus and believing in Jesus and following Jesus. It's going to be difficult. That hardship awaits the true disciple of Christ. That receiving Christ does not mean that every burden is relieved and, and every sorrow is erased in this life. That's coming. But if you follow Christ, there will be sorrows that attach themselves to you because you follow Christ. It's fair to say that. And Jesus wanted them to know that. And we bear so many sorrows. 
griefs in life, the loss of loved ones, the lingering effects of, of divorce, the consequences of decisions that we made in our past. We would all testify, especially those of us who have any gray hair at all, we would all testify that grief can dog you for a lifetime. Some of you remember of the name, how many people would remember the name Kim Fook? How many people remember that name? Hardly anybody here. This is a picture of Kim. And she spoke here at Harvest uh, 13 years ago on the topic of forgiveness. Maybe you'll remember this picture of her better. This is from the Vietnam War in the early 70s, and Kim is at the center of the photograph. Her clothes had been burned off of her by napalm that had been dropped on her village. She was burned over a good portion of her body. In fact, the reporters that were taking these pictures began to pour water on her to alleviate her suffering, but her skin, like her clothes, was literally just being peeled off of her body. She endured countless surgeries and a painful recovery in Vietnam. She often shows pictures, in fact, of her scars. The doctors did the best they could on the skin grafts. But the unintended result of these surgeries and of the trauma that she faced was that nerve endings became embedded in the scar tissue so that the nerves are always inflamed so that there's never a moment of any day at any time when Kim does not feel the pain of what happened to her when she was a little girl. She can never, ever forget. And the sorrow of that day will always be with her. She'll always be reminded of the deep wounds the injustice of being a nine-year-old girl growing up in a quiet rural village and suffering napalm burns from a, an accidental attack from her own Air Force in a war that most believed made no sense at all anyway. Please remember, and this is going to help us, Honestly, just to be kind with one another. Please remember that everyone around you is carrying sorrows. That everyone around you has scar tissue of some kind where nerves are embedded and the sorrows will last for a lifetime. Where the wounds will not be fully healed until we see Christ. And that too is part of the darkness that characterizes this world. Weep, weep for yourselves, Jesus says. The darkness also brings brutality. I think it's safe to say that we humans are hard on each other, aren't we? We're hard on each other. Jesus was led away, verse 32, to, to be put to death. Verse 33, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. That's all a bit uh, sanitized by Luke. He doesn't go into any of the more gruesome details of this, but crucifixion was designed to inflict the maximum amount of agonizing pain on the victim, the one being executed. In fact, it was excruciating pain. And in fact, that word 
excruciating comes to us, C-R-U-C, embedded in the middle of that, same word as crucifixion. In other words, the crucifixion was so painful that no word for pain actually described how painful it was, so they made a new one. It caused the victim, the one being crucified, to asphyxiate over a long period of time. For Jesus, it was just six hours, which was extremely unusual. Some who were being crucified would have lingered for days, in fact. They would asphyxiate, but honestly, they would die of heart failure. You see, the arms had been dislocated by being stretched out and nailed to the crossbeam. And when the feet were nailed to the cross, uh, the person hung there, unable really to breathe. And so, in order to lift their diaphragm, they would have to press their nail-pierced feet and push themselves up to be able to exhale. Over time, they would just lose the ability to do that. In fact, the heart rate would increase, and in an effort to breathe, they would actually die of heart failure. As if the cruelty of the cross wasn't enough, and it's hard really to think about, but human beings thought that up. We, we thought that up. They also divided or cast lots to divide his garment. This was the, the fine garment he got from Herod, who was himself was making fun of him, mocking him as a king. So now they're dividing that up. Verse 35, the rulers, not content to have finally gotten their way to have him crucified. Verse 35, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. It's just cruel. Verse 36 and 37, the soldiers get in on it as well. They mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then this, yes, prophetic, yes, completely true, but intended sarcastically, this sign over him, this is the king of the Jews. All of it intended to brutalize him and to bully a dying man. I'm not sure if the world is more or less violent today. I think we like to tell ourselves that it's less violent, that we're a more civilized people. But I don't know if we add it all up, we hear about an awful lot of violence around the world, brutality and cruelty toward one another. Maybe we only know that because of the information age that we live in, that that information just flows to us so much easier. On a global scale, there have been incomprehensible genocides just in the last few decades. In the 1970s, Cambodia. In the 1990s, Rwanda and Bosnia. In the early 2000s, it was Darfur in the Sudan. And just in the last few years, the plight of the Yazidi people in Iraq and Syria are brutal to each other. Closer to home, just down the road in Toronto, 
In 2018, just last year, in that calendar year, Toronto set a record for murders. 96 people lost their life by homicide in the city of Toronto in 2018. That's one person every four days. The Toronto Star reports that 51 of those were gun-related deaths. Uh, 20 were fatal stabbings. 12 people were murdered in a pair of shocking incidents of mass violence, the Young Street van attack and the Danforth mass shooting. 46 of the people murdered were under the age of 30. 10 of them were minors. 75 men and boys were murdered, 21 women and girls. They're brutal to each other. One of the most despairing of news stories that we ever hear, I, I imagine you feel it as, as deeply as I feel it whenever I hear about it, but it's when someone takes their own life. And it hurts just that much more when we find out it's a young person. And then we find out that in our own neighborhoods and in our own schools, kids who are friends with our kids, bully other kids so much that they see no other way out of it. We're brutal to each other. The thing is, even in the midst of the horror show of the crucifixion, Jesus says this in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you were writing a textbook in anthropology, the study of man, it could be titled, They Know Not What They Do. If you wrote a sociology textbook, you could title it, They Know Not What They Do. If you wrote a comprehensive history of mankind, you could title it, They Know Not What They Do. We're brutal to each other. The darkness also brings anger. It's an almost impossible thing to imagine what happens in verse 39, but one of the criminals who's being crucified with him, Luke tells us that he railed at Jesus. He railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I, I get his anger. His anger, he's being crucified. I don't understand the object of his anger. Why Jesus? Why not the Romans? Why not the people who turned him in? This anger is, is almost impossible to understand, and yet we live in an age of outrage today where people are angry at the wrong people over the wrong things. People are mad about everything today. Respectful discourse has been replaced with anger and hostility toward one another. We no longer simply disagree with another's politics. We actually have to hate them. We have to be mad about it. And too often we have to attack them at the, at the level of their character and not their policies and beliefs, which are two very distinct things. It's become impossible to disagree and not be mad about it. And, and this shows up 
in, in, in the way that we respond to one another over things like road rage. Because since when does, and this is a real story lifted from the news just in the last few days. Since when does cutting someone off in traffic result in a 10-year-old girl shot dead in the back seat of her dad's car in her parents' driveway? We see that happened to Summer Brown in Phoenix just last week. We're out of control. We're angry about the wrong things. And it's the darkness that envelops this world that's made us so angry. And Jesus didn't leave us there though. He, he hasn't given us over to the burdens and the sorrows and the brutality and the anger. He hasn't left us there. He hasn't left us without a way out. The light still shines. And it reveals some amazing things when you look into the text. There's some, some good that's peeking through the sorrow and, and the brutality and the anger and the burdens. Glimpses of God at work. I hope you saw this in the text as it was read, even at the cross with the grotesque cruelty unfolding in front of everyone, even in the midst of the darkness that had covered the whole land and, and the sun's light failing, there was still little cracks of light emerging in that darkness. First of all, we see hope. It's in verse 40. The second criminal rebukes the first one. He says to him, do you not fear God? We're about to meet him. Why don't you fear him? He, he says, we're under the same sentence of condemnation. We're all dying here and very soon. Then he says in verse 41, and we indeed justly, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. We're actually guilty. We did the crimes. And now we're suffering the consequences for that. So we're guilty. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. But I hope you can see the light streaming in as he says that. That there's still hope here. And then there's this shocking moment in verse 41, the latter part, where he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What would compel a man in his situation to look at Jesus in his situation and think that Jesus offered him any hope? That is an impossible situation. What, what would people around be thinking as they hear this conversation going on where they see a condemned criminal who's dying talking to another condemned accused criminal who's dying and asking him to remember him in his kingdom as if, as, as, as if he had the power to enact that? Jesus, in this moment, it would appear, has nothing to offer him. The impossibility of Jesus helping him should seem obvious to everyone, but, but is this not proof? The salvation doesn't come from us or for any effort of man. That every time someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it is a miracle of God. 
that only he could accomplish. That's what we see here. We don't have it in ourselves. And if the hope that we have doesn't come from God, people are looking for hope in all kinds of things. I, so I hope for this and I really hope this is going to happen. My hope is in, listen, if your hope is in anything other than God, it's not really hope, it's wishful thinking. But it's not hope that's actually going to help you. Jesus sealed it when he said to him, verse 43, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's hope. And then there's peace shining through in the midst of all the angst and the anger of the situation. At 3 p.m., Luke tells us, verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The temple was a, a, an extremely large building built with various rooms and at the very center of everything there was the holy place and then there was the holy of holies. It was a 30 foot by 30 foot room and when they had the Ark of the Covenant that's what was in the midst of the room, the Ark of the Covenant. There was a heavy and large 30 foot long veil and all the way up to the top that hung in front of it and you could only go in the Holy of Holies, excuse me, only one man, the high priest, could go in the Holy Holies and he could only do it one time per year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's it. One man only, one time per year. I mean, this is the most, when the temple stood, this is the most sacred place on the entire planet. And this curtain was there. And in this very moment, the curtain was torn in two. And Matthew and Mark both record, Luke doesn't, but Matthew and Mark both record. It was torn from top to bottom. Who tore the veil? God did. God tore the veil wide open. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this as we seek to understand what's going on with the tearing of the veil and the opening up of the Holy of Holies. Paul said this in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who were once sinners, you who were once alienated from God, you who were once separated from him, you who were once burdened and, and racked by sorrow and consumed by brutality and, and, and filled with anger, you who were once far off from God, have been brought near. Nothing is separating you from God any longer. Nothing is restricting your access to him any longer. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ, his sacrifice, his death. This is the why of the cross. Notice, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's taken down the curtain of the temple. He's torn it in two. Our high priest is Jesus. We need no other priest. There is no singular place. We can meet him anywhere. Our God opened the way for us to have that relationship with him. 
And the price was his life. Jesus made the way for you and I to be at peace with God. These hard words that Jesus spoke in verse 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. By the way, Kim Fook found the hope, has the peace, has forgiven the pilot, forgiven the soldiers, forgiven everyone. She defected from Vietnam, stepped off the airplane in Newfoundland, asked for asylum in Canada, became a citizen, came to faith in Jesus Christ and lives right down the road near Toronto. And that's what's helped her heal over all of these things. Jesus gave her this. He tore down any hostility that she had. We also see the light in, in, in the faith. However faint it is, expressed by some who knew there was something unusual about the death of Jesus. Verse 47, uh, first we see the centurion who saw what had taken place. And he, this is a Roman centurion, praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now that's, that's baby faith. There's not much to it. I don't know what else he knew about Jesus, but this is just baby faith. This is, I don't fully get it, but there's something here to believe in. I don't fully get it, but there's something here to believe in. And, and that really is all you need. Then, then there's these crowds, verse 48. The crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they were turned home beating their breasts. Now I imagine some in this crowd might have been some of the same crowd that went to the garden and arrested him and might be some of the same crowd that were in the courtyard accusing him in front of Pilate and Herod. Well, now they're walking away beating their breasts. This, this is a, a symbol of their, their mourning. They're broken over this. Something's happened in, in the watching of Jesus being crucified. Something has clicked for them and they realize there's more going on here than we first thought. Then there's Jesus' acquaintances, verse 49, and, and the women who had followed him from Galilee who stood at a distance watching these things because they knew in their hearts there was more going on here. They couldn't just run. When Charles Price was here in February, as some of you may remember that he spoke here, of formerly the pastor at the People's Church in Toronto, he spoke about faith and he was really clear that it's not about the amount of faith or the strength of our faith. That's not the thing that matters. We often think about that. Do you have enough faith to believe this? Is your faith strong enough to get over this? We often talk in that language and that's not the thing at all. But it really is about, and Price pointed this out, it really is about the object of our faith. What is your faith in? How strong is that? It's very similar to the conversation that the disciples actually had with Jesus back in Luke 17. And they went to him and they said, increase our faith. Give us more faith. Give us, 
give us a stronger faith, whatever it was, they were asking for that. And then Jesus said to them, he didn't immediately give them that. Instead, he said to them, listen, uh, you just need to have faith like a mustard seed, which is a very, very small seed. Easy to miss, in fact, so small. You just need to have the smallest amount of faith, Jesus was saying, and that would be enough because it isn't about your faith, it's about the object of your faith, it's about Jesus. And we see the smallest amount of faith coming from the centurion. The smallest amount of faith coming from the crowds who are now beating their breasts. The smallest amount of faith from these acquaintances and these women who are standing at a distance. I don't fully get it. But there's something to believe in here. There's something extraordinary about Jesus. Whatever faith you can bring to the table, it's enough. That little glimmer of light is enough. And the reality is, as of this June, I will have been walking with Jesus for 40 years. I was 15 years old when I gave my life to Christ. 40 years. And I still feel like I don't quite get it and that my faith is super small. But that's okay because the object of my faith is not. I trust in Jesus. Amen? And finally this. The last little glimmer of light here is this unconditional love that we see peeking through the darkness. This man, verse 50, Joseph of Arimathea comes. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, this, this Jewish council that condemned Jesus. But he's described here as a good and a righteous man. And in fact, he's, we're told in verse 51 that he had not consented to the decision and the action concerning Jesus. And so not every one of the religious leaders, they get a rough ride here in the teaching of the gospel, but not every one of the religious leaders was against Jesus. Not every member of the Sanhedrin was out to get him. Luke goes on to describe him as a man that was looking for the kingdom of God. In other words, he had a genuine heart for the Lord and he was really watching for his Messiah to come. And at great risk to his reputation, in fact, at great risk to his life, Verse 52, he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. In verse 53, he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid him in a, temp, a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And in the midst of the darkness, Joseph is expressing his love for Jesus in the only way he knew how, a very sacrificial way. He wasn't the only one. At sundown, approached on that Friday, for the Jews, the Sabbath begins at sundown. Verse 54, the Sabbath was beginning. Verse 55, the women saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They just wanted to know where he was because there wasn't going to be time now before the Sabbath started to prepare the body. So they're taking note of this, verse 56, and then they returned and they prepared spices and ointments prior to the start of the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, the text tells us, they rested according to the commandment, fully intending that once the Sabbath was done, at dawn on Sunday, that they would return to the tomb. And as was the custom for the Jews, they would anoint, clean, and tend to the body. Another 
act of unconditional love in the midst of the deep darkness of the crucifixion. Yes, for sure, there was darkness over the whole land. Yes, the sun's light failed. Yes, right now our lives and this world are filled with burdens and sorrows and brutality and anger. And becoming a follower of Jesus Christ does not change these things. We live in a sin-sickened world and our own hearts are still grappling with the darkness that's all around us, but there is hope and we can be at peace with God and with one another and all it takes is the smallest amount of faith in your part to receive the unconditional love of our God. And all of this the result of Jesus Christ sacrificing his life for us. Let's pray. Father, you um, elsewhere in your word have said that into the darkness the light has shined. And we are grateful that that light has shined. We're grateful that in the midst of the darkness of that Good Friday, which stands for the darkness that's all around us even to this day, Father, you have revealed your light to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, we need that. We need to know that in the midst of all the heartache and pain around us, that there's hope. That when we face conflict, a day is coming and that'll all come to an end and we will have peace with God. Father, where we no longer need to agonize over the brutality of human beings and, and, and the anger that's all around us. Because, Father, you have given us faith. You have given us the object of our faith in your Son. And you have loved us. You have loved us way beyond what we deserve. You have loved us in our sin and in our brokenness. And so, God, as I prayed off the top, let the cross of Christ today encourage the faint-hearted, challenge the rebel, teach the ignorant, and save the lost. We pray in Christ's name.